Brother Daniel, and thank you for singing so well this morning. It's a blessing to uh, to hear you sing. I get uh, blessed just by listening. I love to sing, and I love to hear the congregation sing. I want you to turn to two locations in your Bible as we begin this morning. Turn to the book of Galatians chapter 6, and also turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And I think you're going to learn something and, and be helped this morning. Uh, those two portions... Uh, we should underline some things, write some things down, and then uh, some verses will be on the screen for you also. Uh, in that order, Galatians chapter 6, and then First Peter chapter 2. I want to talk to you about influencing people. Leadership is influence. Everyone is a leader because you have influence. Influencing people to salvation. We've been talking about uh, investing and inviting Investing and inviting. And next Saturday, we want to go to a neighborhood that's really a, a new neighborhood here in our area. In fact, we have uh, folks that are here in our church this morning uh, that moved there. Uh, came from uh, out of town, from the Midwest, and they moved here. And they lived there, and they came to our church. And I'm, I'm ever grateful uh, for their family. They're very, very dear friends. And there's a lot of families there. And so God has told us to, in Acts, I'm sorry, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 to be witnesses uh, in Jerusalem. And then in Luke chapter 24, he said, I want you to begin in Jerusalem. Now, here's why that's important. When Jesus gave that command, he was in Jerusalem. So that doesn't mean that we have to go to Israel, in Jerusalem, Israel, to begin to give the gospel. The idea is this, is start where you are. Start on your street. Start with your neighbors. Start with your family. We have used a little acronym of FRAN, F-R-A-N. You have FRANs. This is kind of corny, okay? But it helps you to remember it. Uh, your friends are your friends, your relatives, your associates, and your neighbors. Your friends, your relatives, your associates are your acquaintances, uh, people that you maybe aren't real close to, but you see them at the bank uh, every other week if you still do that. Uh, they wait on you at a table. You get the idea. People uh, you meet at the ball game with your kids while they're playing and your neighbors. Uh, this is your Jerusalem. Your Jerusalem is different than my Jerusalem. And so we want to uh, next uh, Saturday uh, from 9 to 12, you'll, you'll have these little bags and uh, the object is really not to speak to people, not because we're, we want to be rude. Uh, we want to cover as many houses as possible and uh, to hang them on the doorknobs. Now, if someone's there, you can say, hey, my name is Rick, and I'm from Friendship Baptist Church. We're just inviting people to our church, and we hope you'll come. All the information is there in the bag, and you can do that. So this is really not uh, – we're trying to get maximum exposure, and, and we need your help. So we want to invest, we want to make an impact in our neighborhood, and we want to invite. Uh, I had a great blessing this morning. I had no idea. I came up and sat down uh, from my class, and Rodriguez came up to me with a big smile. And, uh, Rodriguez, would you come up here? Not on the stage. I'll come down here. Come up here. I'm, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but you look like a, a good leader. And he goes to Whitesburg, and I came up here to church uh, this week. And he was, he was coming back from uh, the dollar store with two. What are your two other friends? What are their names? Uh, Miguel and Noah. Miguel and Noah, yeah. 
and uh, and they're, one of them's in Birmingham, right? Or both yes. of them? Yeah. Yeah, okay. And so I told them about what we do here, and I told them about the young people and the teenagers and what all they do. And so he came to Life Group this morning, and listen, the power of an invitation, just, just taking time with people, just being nice to people. He was nice to me. And, uh, and I love you, son. Thank you for coming. Aren't you glad he came today? Isn't that good? Yeah. Thank you for coming. Okay, you're going to be seated. God bless you. Thank you for coming, buddy. Now listen, I. You you have a, a power in you that God has given to you, the power of the Holy Spirit, uh, to be something that is not naturally you. Gracious, kind, patient. And we'll see that in a moment, that God can use those things to make people, influence them, to make people want what you have. And so I appreciate this young man. It's also good to see uh, Ken Ken, I look back there while I was playing the piano. Man, we've been praying for you. And, uh, man, you look good, buddy. Yep. God bless you, man. I'll talk to you after the service. I'm glad you're here. Ken had some very serious surgery, and uh, we're so grateful for God's mercy to you, brother. And uh, our prayers have been answered. We love you so much. Well, let's talk a little bit about influencing other people by investing and helping them come to Christ. Years ago, uh, we had a special day. Uh, we used to have it annually called Friend Day. And some days we would have uh, Friend Sundays. And one Sunday we would have Friend Sunday. One day we would have Relative Sunday. One Sunday we would have a, a Acquaintance Sunday or Associate Sunday. One Sunday we would have Neighbor Sunday. Well, this year we just had uh, Friend Day. And uh, we would... I won't go through everything we did, but we did special things to help people invite their friends. And it was a lot of fun and a, a good thing to get people to come. Well, Brother Andy Sisko invited a friend that he worked with. His name was Jerry. And uh, Jerry sat right back here, right where the Hepburns are sitting. Uh, we had pews back then in our auditorium to go all the way back. We had a wall right back there. And so, uh, and our, and our um, platform didn't protrude out this much. It was about three or four feet back. But anyhow, um, I preached the message that morning. And during the invitation, I said, now, uh, no one's looking. We have our heads bowed and eyes closed. But if you don't know for sure that your home is heaven, but you're interested in it, you would like to know that when you die that you would go to heaven. I want to pray for you. I may not know for you, I will not embarrass you, but I would love to pray for you. Uh, would you give me that privilege? And, uh, and would you lift your hand so I could pray for you? And Jerry raised his hand. I met him before the service. I'd never met him before. He just raised his hand. And I prayed for him. And he wasn't saved that day. I had his address. And so uh, the, the following week, three or four days after that, I went to Meridianville. And went up to, to Jerry's home, uh, called him and asked if I could drop by. And went in there and sat down. He married his wife, was a, a preacher's daughter. And sat down and got to know his, his family and his daughter and um, his wife. And just, he grew up in Huntsville and these sorts of things. And anyhow, Jerry was saved that night. Presented the gospel to him and baptized in the baptistry behind me. Now, I told you that story to tell you this, that Andy had invited him 
many times to our church. He had invited him on, on many times. And they were very close. They still are close. Jerry's a great guy. Just, just, in fact, still serving God, walking with God. They go to another church in our city now. They serve God faithfully in our church for many years. And just, just precious people. I see them uh, uh, out. We still uh, stay in contact. We see them out in restaurants uh, now and then. But he did not come the first time. But here's my question. How did Andy influence Jerry to come to church? Now, we've been talking about invest and invite, invest and invite. And you you influence people by investing in them. Now, the Word of God gives us a word, a very clear word, on how to have influence with unsaved people and also influence with Christians. And it's not by, Brother Daniel and I were talking yesterday about charisma. Uh, some people uh, want charisma. There are some people that have a presence about them. I mean, when they walk into a room, they lighten the room up. Uh, charisma is influence. You know, you know, you say, well, well, preacher, I would like to have that charisma. How do I have it? Well, you don't seek it. Let me tell you how to have charisma. Be more interested in others than yourself. That's how you have charisma. Um, just just learn people's names. Love people. Uh, don't talk about yourself all the time. When you're in a conversation, learn about them. And have a, have a pure motive about it. And people will love to talk to you because you're, you're genuine. That's how you have charisma. It's not what the world teaches where you're, you're gaining this big um, personality so you can leverage things to your advantage. Now, how did Andy influence Jerry? I want to give you just a, a glimmer of that, not the whole thing, but a piece of that, because the Bible gives us this command on how that you and I can live towards lost people and towards Christians. I'm going to co- uncover that in another message, that we can influence them for God and for good. And it's given to us in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. If you look there with me, Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. And there the Bible says, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all men. All men. Okay, all men. That's lost and saved. You can divide the world up into two categories. uh, Lost and saved. And so all men. Do good unto all men. And here's the second category. Especially unto them who are the household of faith. So here you have lost people. That's all men. Do good to everybody. Do good to your friends. Do good to people you don't know. But also do good, especially unto those. The word household means family. That's your church family. Those are other Christians. And we'll talk about that at another time. And there is, there is a recipe, not the only recipe, but we've been going through Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 through Actually, verse 6 through 10. I'm just going to look at this one verse today on, on uh, how you can have influence in evangelism and, and touching people's hearts so they come to know Jesus. As we have, therefore, opportunity, let us do good unto all men. Let me give you observations. I wrote down three observations. Number one, we're to do good unto all men. Now, that's in the text, all men. Now, I don't want to do good. I want people to do good unto me. But when I was saved, God changed me. 
And he made my heart, he gave me a desire to be unselfish. So now I don't, I don't want to be just a taker, but I want to be a giver. So I'm going to ask you a question. In your family, are you the giver or the taker? At work, are you the giver or the taker? Are other people always bringing the coffee? Do you bring it? At church, are you the giver or the taker? Let us do good unto all men. Do good. It has this idea. It has a quality of act, but it comes from a servant's heart. You will never do good if you do not have a servant's heart. You will never serve if you do not have a servant's heart. You will never have, you will never have a labor of love if, if you don't serve. Because you're not, you're not content unless, you're, unless people know what you do. You're, you're not content to be in the shadows. And God loves people in the shadows. We are to do good to all men. Number two, we're to do good to the household of faith. Those are Christians. This is what God calls us to do. Number three, we're to do good as we have opportunity. As we have, therefore, opportunity. Now listen, if I'm to do good to everybody, lost people, saved people, especially Christians and especially my church family, I'm going to have a lot of opportunities. So basically, my my life summary is I'm to be a servant. I'm to be known as someone that just does good. I I read a verse to you last week in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. I love this verse. It says about Jesus. It says, and Jesus went about doing good. He went about doing good. It's a one-sentence biography of Jesus' life. And he just went about doing good. Jesus did more good than he did miracles. Now he thank God he did the miracles, but he just did good because he was good. Contextually, Galatians six ten, as we therefore have opportunity, let us do good unto all men, especially those of the household of faith. It's in a context of the giving. Of finances. That's what it's talking about. But the principle is this. It it is sowing a seed of the gift of grace. And here's what he says in verse 7. That you will reap a harvest. In verse 9 he says, be patient. It's not about what what you get immediately back. But here's the principle. Serving people gives me a hearing to sow the seed of the gospel. Serving people gives me a hearing. Well, preacher, they they won't listen to me. They make fun of me. Serve them, they'll listen to you. Well, they laugh at me. Keep serving them. You do good to them. People pay attention when they love you. Or when, yeah, when they love you. And when you love them. Sometimes I hear leaders talk about, well, the people, uh, we talk about uh, how to be great leaders. And I'll tell you something, people don't, people don't follow people they don't like. They will follow you for a while because you provide benefits. But after a while, if you just give them benefits but they don't like you, and I'm not talking about being just uh, kind of a Pollyanna person. 
But do do you have? Are you a beneficiary? Are are you doing these things for the good of others? This is this is so important. You're investing the life of Jesus into other people, and the way you talk, the conversations you have. Listen, the way you talk. Do you talk about yourself? Some of you don't know how to converse yet. You know, you, you meet somebody older and they say, let me show you a picture of my grandchild. Say, oh, no, here it comes. If they want to show just be interested in it. Where do they live? Well, how many grandkids do you have? Just be sincere. Be interested. Let me tell you what happens when you do that. They walk away and they say, that person was a great conversationalist. You spoke 10 minutes. They spoke nine. One man said this. He said, learn to speak in terms of the other person's interest. Changed my life. Now listen, you can do this to manipulate people or you, you can do this to serve people. But I'm trying to get people on God's agenda, not my agenda. So... Two reasons that we that we do good. I'm just going to give you one this morning and we'll be finished. Number one, and I've been hitting on this, but I won't hit it again. Because if you want a platform, if you want effectiveness, you have to do this. Serving validates your faith and it gives you a platform for your testimony. It validates your faith. People can look at you and say, hey, I know that person knows Jesus because of the way they talk. Not just that they don't curse, but they're interested in me. They're kind. I know that person is saved, not just because they pull out of the driveway every Sunday. That's a good thing. And I see them outside, their car's going to church. But when they leave, when I see them during the week, they wave and they smile at me. They're different. And you have a servant's heart. Maybe you cut their grass when they're gone. And, and hey, can I help you? When you're going to you take the trash can up when they need it. I don't know. You're serving them. Now, they may think, oh, that's, they're just cornball people. But after a while, they say, they're really like that. I remember uh, a guy came on our staff in 1981 up in Virginia. He's been there since 1981. He's retiring at the same church. What is that? 40, 42 years. After 42 years of ministry. And uh, he'd gotten saved in the church. We we're going through the line and and I knew him. I didn't know him real well, but I knew him and uh, he was a lot of fun. And I shook his hand. I said, uh, Mike, I said, uh, I'm, I'm glad you're here because I was on staff. I said, we're going to have a good time. I said, Mike, I love you. He said, no, you don't. Now, he's funny, but part of, part of it is he, he was cynical a little bit. He said, I mean, we're in line in front of the church. I said, yes, I do. No, you don't, Rick. I said, yes, I do. And he was like that. He, he, would, he would put me on trial. He, he, had never, he had never had anybody in his life that said that to him, especially a man. We don't talk like that. He was in the Army, retired out of the Army. Serving kindness, loving people, this kind of investing, doing good, 
It validates your faith and it gives you a platform for your testimony. Now, last week we talked about serving when people wish you harm, when they've mistreated you. We looked at a litany of verses and over and over and over it said, do them good. Do them good. Do them good. Do them good. Now today I, I want to take you down through some scriptures. What do you do when people reject you? They, they just don't believe what you believe, and maybe they embarrass you. I remember I played football. I had a coach that shut me down, and he mocked me in front of the team for other reasons. Now, I want you to write this down. I'm going to look at a verse with you. Write this down. A godly life is more powerful than a good argument. A godly life is more powerful than a good argument. God didn't call you to be... A lawyer, he called you to be a witness. You're not a prosecuting attorney, you're a witness. There's a difference. A godly life is more powerful than a good argument. Let let the gospel do its work. The Holy Spirit is the one that convicts, not you. I wish you'd quit smoking. Well, they're going to smoke to spite you. Pray for them. I wish you'd quit cussing. A godly life is more powerful than a good argument. You can line up all the arguments you want. You know, you can't you can't lead a horse to water, but you can salt the oats. And what salts the oats is a godly life. Now, the theme of First Peter, the first book of the Bible I preached through here when I became pastor in 1986, was First Peter. I don't know why I picked it, but I did. And the theme of 1 Peter is how to suffer well. And it talks about God's purposes. One of the ways you suffer well is you understand God's purposes. And here here was a group of Christians that were suffering rejection from the government. They were suffering rejections from people because of their association with Jesus. And so what Peter writes them, he tells them, He teaches them how to have redemptive relationships from people that were against them. Now, we live in that world now. We live in a world where people are against us. Now, by the way, lost people are not our enemies, they're victims. Now, they choose to do wrong, but but we're trying to win them to Christ. Now, if you read 1 Peter 2, we're going to look at a little bit of this morning. You find there that um, they were mocking them, the government. They were literally burning them. Um, Nero was taking Christians and dipping them in oil, putting them on poles, and lighting his gardens at night in Rome with the flame of Christians' bodies burning alive. He hated Christians. And Paul, or excuse me, Peter wrote the book of 1 Peter to people going through stuff like that. I mean, stuff we go through is nothing compared to that in other matters. But I want you to just pick, we're going to pick out just a few verses. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15. Look at this verse. For so is the will of God that with well-doing. I want you to notice that. 
that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. Now, there, there are people that are behaving like fools. So I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll tell them they're fools. What they do is they go out and protest. We'll just protest against them. We'll argue harder with them. We, we will debate with them. Well, God says, uh, this is the will of God that we do well. To serve them. No, 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 that doesn't work. Well, you're, this is what the Bible says. This is the will of God that you do well. And it's more than living right. It's doing good. And what happens when you do that? You, you put them to silence. Now, the, the Greek word there has the idea of you, you muzzle them. You quieten them. They have no answer for that. I, I I can't. I have no answer for that because it's the grace of God. That's what Jesus did. When the angels came to Sodom and they said, "We're going to destroy this city," and they told Lot, they said, "You need to get your family out of here. Get your daughters and your wife." And get your sons-in-law out of here because this place is going up literally in a ball of fire. And it's located there by the Dead Sea. Some people think it's under the Dead Sea part of it. And in Genesis chapter 19 and verse 14, this is interesting. And Lot went out and he went to his sons-in-law, to the sons-in-law which married his daughters and said, Up, get you out of this place. The Lord will destroy this city. But Lot seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. The word mock there, you know what it means? It means to scorn or to make a joke. What happened is they said um, they made him a joke. And they thought, oh, he's just messing around. Because Lot's life did not back up his profession. And then when it came time to get serious, and the heat was literally about to, to come up, he had no platform. Well, Brother Rick, I want a platform, so I want to learn the Bible so I can explain it to people. I want you to learn the Bible so you explain it to people. God says you need to do good. You need to obey the Bible. You need to obey the Bible. Heard about a leader this week. I was listening to a, a, a podcast on mentoring. And they were interviewing a, a pastor and another leader. And he said on his desk, because he, he dealt with a lot of controversial issues, that he had this put under... Back in the old days, they used to put glass on top of your desk. Y'all remember that? Some of you still may have that. But he had two words put under his desk. Stay sweet. Stay sweet. Because he dealt with so many volatile issues. You need to stay sweet. You know, I can lose my testimony like that. 
Just like that. I shared my life group this morning about a parent when I was coaching. You had to coaching baseball. The games lasted six innings. Every player had to play two innings. Now, sometimes because of the scores, you only got four innings in. It was hard. So I created, I created a rotation. I literally wrote it out. So every game was, was equal, and I, I knew exactly what was going on. So I coached the game and finished up. I was carrying the bags. You would be surprised. You would be surprised how many times I carried those bags back to my car by myself. Which, okay, I'm the coach. But pe- people don't have servants' hearts. I'm carrying the helmets, the bags. My boys played baseball. Their coach was unsaved. Jeremiah John, the coach was unsaved. I said, you, you will be the last ones in the dugout. You're going to clean the dugout, and you're going to carry the equipment for the coach every game. Every game. Okay, Daddy. The coach got saved. Listen, I, I'm not talking to you about stuff that doesn't work. This is the Word of God. So I've carried the stuff back, put it in the trunk. I had a visit to make that night, and I had a, a parent that followed me, and this guy just caused a lot of trouble. He hollered at his kid all the time, come to the dugout. One time I said, sir, could you just kind of, lay off of him a little bit. He's, he's already nervous and trying to watch my words with him. I was like, man, you're just a jerk. This is what I wanted to say. I wouldn't want to have you for a dad, all of this stuff, but I didn't. Pressure in his son, terrible. And uh, so I looked up, shut the trunk, and I was about to get in the car, and I had an appointment, and I had to drive a distance, and he's there. And he says, my son didn't get to play the whole game. I said, well, look, I, I, um, do you remember when I told, I had the parent meeting at the beginning of the year, and I said, everybody will get to play a whole game, and then there will be times you get to play two innings. And then I, I gave you all a handout, and that was in there. Yeah, but he, he didn't get to play the whole game tonight. And I called him by his name. I said, did you see who was sitting by your son in the dugout tonight that wasn't playing? He said, no. I said, my son was. My son was sitting by your son in the dugout not playing. I kid you not. He said, oh. And he turned around and left. He didn't say, I'm sorry. He didn't, he didn't smile. He's, you know, man, I, I shouldn't. He just left. And I said, what a jerk. In my heart. I hate to deal with these people. What am I doing out here? So then um, the season's over. I mean, there's more that happened. It just it was rough stuff. So then about um, two or three years later, I mean, this, he's, our boys aren't playing together. I hadn't seen him in two or three years later. I get up here to preach, and he's sitting out here in the congregation. The father, the jerk is in the church. I said, oh, Father, forgive me. Have I said anything? Did I ever say he was a jerk? What did I do? 
So, after it was over, as it was his custom, he came up to me real quickly. He had that kind of a personality, you know. I said, hey, it was good to see you today. He says, yeah, I've been listening to your sermons on uh, online. And he said, I, I liked them. He said, you know, I always liked you. <laughs> Listen, you can blow your testimony like that. You can blow it like that. I remember I was coaching again, and one reason we coached was to have an impact on people. Not just so our kids could play ball. That was a reason, but we did it so we could win people to Christ and affect them for the kingdom. And uh, there was a coach on the other team, in the same league on the other team. So I began to talk to him. I said, well, uh, over a period of time, get to know him. Where do you work at? He told me the place. I said, oh, we, we have a guy in our, our church that works there. And it was Gary Adams. Gary had just lost his, his position there. They had demoted him. The business had sold, and, and five people had bought it, and they had a structure rearrangement, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, we can fire people. And Gary had just, in that particular field, it was, you have a lead. He wasn't a lead anymore. By the way, you know what Gary told me? After six months, he said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. I don't make as much money, but I get to come home. He said, now, at the time, I didn't know it. I was hurt, but it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Now, listen. I said, we have a man in our church that works there. He said, who is it? And I told him, Gary Adams. And his face fell, and he said, oh. He said, we, we didn't do Gary right. And I wanted to say, well, yeah, I know he talked to me, because I thought he was in the same boat, but I, I don't know. God restrained my tongue. And I said, well, he said, you know, uh, the company was sold, and I was one of the five people that bought the company. And here's what he said. He said, we didn't do Gary right, and, and he has had the best attitude. He never complains. Oh, man. Now, I'll tell you something. Not only did Gary have a testimony, guess who else he gave a platform to? Me. Listen, this thing of doing good is, is not, it's not small. I had a friend that came to me and said, uh, my grandfather is in the hospital, and I need you to, to go witness to them. They're not going to live long. Maybe he's not going to live long. Maybe a week, he's still conscious. Would you go witness to him? Well, I knew this person, and I knew they knew the Bible, and they could, but they didn't feel capable and I said, I will on one condition. I said, what? I said, that you go first. I don't know your grandfather. He's going to listen to you, not me. And I said, I will go in there after you do. And I said, I'll help you with the words, but you, I know you. You know the words. And I said, you have a heart for him. You have a burden. If you go first, I'll go. I said, that's the deal. They went, they called me, I said, how'd, they, how'd it go? Weeping, they said, he got saved. You know, sometimes we think, well, 
the religious people, the pastors, the so-called religious, they, they do all the lifting. No, God has called you to do good. God has called you. You, you have influence more than, more than you know. So what about these family members, these co-workers, these college roommates, teammates, and, and they, they mock you? Now, turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm going to look at this hurriedly. Now, here's the background. Here's the context. Uh, a wife gets saved. And uh, she's saved, and now she's under the authority of Jesus Christ. And because she's under the authority of Jesus Christ, she has a superior authority. And she's not under the authority of her divine, God-deputized authority in the home, her husband. And her husband's a pagan. He smokes and drinks, and he's not interested in God or the church. And so she begins to push him, and she's burdened for him. She's sincerely burdened for him. And so she begins to, to push him. And, uh, and then she begins to resent him. And then she, he says, why don't, you, why don't you stay home tonight and... And cook something. And she's, no, no, Jesus has called me to be at the church. And he gets further and further away from the gospel, further and further away from Christ. And, 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 and she thinks that, well, if I, if, I, if I look nice and I talk nice, it, it'll win the heart of my husband. And if I can just pray for him, maybe if he hears me pray. But listen, uh, makeup does not, does not cover a bitter spirit. Uh, makeup does not make rebellion any better. And the way you're going to win them is not that. What, what is the secret weapon that God has given a wife that goes through that, or there's a principle here, not just a wife, it's in the context of a wife, but a worker. It may be someone that's under a domineering man at work, or a woman at work. I had a man at our church who, who was working for a lesbian that just hated Christians, and he hated going to work. And he told me how, how difficult it was. Or maybe you may have a brother or sister or a parent, or you may have a wife that's in this condition. So the principles are the same. When I was at my church in Virginia, uh, there was a man that really affected my life there. I was on staff with him. He was real high in the government. And uh, he was a presidential appointee. And, and then God called him to ministry. I learned so much from him. And... His wife got saved. He wasn't interested in God. She was going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, ladies' meetings. She did everything. She got burdened for her husband. She's a good lady. And she did what every good woman would want to do. Now, this is their testimony. I'm not making any of this up. So they would have supper, and she would, at supper at night, she would put gospel tracts beside his plate. And she would play Christian radio stations all through the day and she would hassle him these are his words 
and nag him about going to church. And he just tolerated the tracks and the Christian radio stations, but it was, it was alienating him and bringing him further away. And by the way, this alienates other people, especially when, they, when they're not interested. And then she learned a new approach. It's a biblical approach, the one I'm going to show you in a minute. And it crushed the heart of her husband. And I'm telling you, it'll, it'll win the heart of people. And this is, God, this is God's way. It's not the world's way. And, and there are churches that don't teach this because they say, no, it, it, this, this doesn't work. Well, you, you don't work it. This is God's way. First Peter chapter 3, look at verse 1. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word. Now, there's two uses of the word word here. Now, that's the word of God. So he, he's not obeying the word. He's not a Christian. But maybe your husband is, is, is not as far along as where he ought to be spiritually. And you're, you're more mature than he is. And why don't you go through this Bible study with me? It's not, you know, it's okay to ask him, but if he says no, then okay, he said no. There's some other ways to do this. That if any obeys not the word, they also may we, without the word, this is a word from the wife. They also, if any obey not the word of God, they also may without the word of the wife be one. I want you to notice that because that's the goal, to win them. I want to win my wife. I want to win my brother, my mom and dad. I want to win my boss. I want to win my coach. I want to win them to Christ. They may be won by the conversation of the wives. Now, the old English word conversation there includes your speech, but it's not limited to your speech. And it means a type of speech. I'll show you this in a minute. It doesn't mean you talk to them more. It has the idea of your overall lifestyle. It's the way you live. Basically, that's what it means. They're going to be won by the way you live, not not by the amount of words you use. That's what it's saying. Verse 2, while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear, who's adorning externally... By the way, when you adorn a Christmas tree, it, it makes it more beautiful. Okay, adorning is that which is external uh, to 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 give it a more uh, effective appearance, more beautiful appearance. Who's adorning? Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. As some some precious people interpret this that it's wrong to wear makeup, wrong to fix your hair, and wrong to wear jewelry. That's not what he's saying. He's saying this this is not to be the emphasis. The emphasis is not external. You're not going to win people by external shows. It's on the inside. Verse four. But let let it be the hidden man of the heart. I have this underlined: outward and hidden. You see that. In verse 3, outward, and then in verse 4, you have hidden, and then you have heart. You're not going to win them externally. You're going to win them with your heart, that which is hidden, and that which is not corruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit. So, so this ornament is not external, it's internal. What's beautiful is not what you adore, adorn yourself it is not external stuff. 
It's not you doing, it's being. But a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, is great, of great price. This is valuable to God, not just for women, but for men. Now, meekness is humble in attitude. It's humble. God loves humility. God is attracted to humility, and so are people. God is repulsed by pride, and so are people. A meek and quiet spirit, quiet in words and actions. Also has the idea of faith in God that this is working, that God, this is very difficult, but my heart is quiet before you as my words are quiet. Now, let me, let me point out a couple of words here. Number one, the word subjection in verse 1. This is external, but a long time before it's external, it is a disposition of the heart. It is a willing placement of oneself under another. It's, it's humble submission. Let me, you know, this word is used, I'll just read it to you, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus went down to Jerusalem with his parents and he stayed behind. In verse 51, I'll just read it to you. Jesus went down with his parents and came back to Nazareth and was subject unto them. It's the same word there. The Son of God was subject subject to his parents. And he knew more than them. He was God. But he, he submitted himself to the authority of his parents. Now, God has deputized in the home the man as the leader. This is, this is the role. Every, every organization has a leader. If you don't, anything that's two-headed is a monster and destructive. Rebellion is a spirit before it's a behavior, and it's destructive. Many people have rebellious young people because they have rebellious mothers and fathers. And they see their fathers with disrespectful attitudes toward authority. And they see mothers with disrespectful attitudes towards authority. And sometimes it's subliminal. They don't even know, and the parents don't know, but the kids are picking up that, that rebellion. And there's, there's not a brokenness. Submission is supernatural. Rebellion is natural. I, I don't like, I don't like people telling me what to do. I mean, I'm driving places 25 miles. Oh, you got to be kidding! What 25 miles an hour? You go up to Chattanooga. Oh, th- what is this? It's 25 miles an hour. Do you really? Do you really do that? Come on, Rick. You're just preaching. Go ask my wife. Listen. Um, Rebellion is natural. Submission is supernatural. And you need to know your role. And if you can't, this is not a teaching on this, but I'll just mention this. It's okay to make an appeal. Get the speed limit changed. But there's ways to do that. Now notice the first word in verse 1, likewise. Like what? Well, if you go back, you have to go back to the immediate context. 
Like who is a wife being compared to? Well, look at verse 21. For even here and two were you called because Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. Now watch this. He did no sin. God was not found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, look at this. When he was punished, he didn't threaten. He committed himself to his father that judgeth righteously. His own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree that we being dead to sin should live under righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. And it emphasizes this again. For ye were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. Here's Jesus who did not deserve to be punished and deserve to die for our sins. But he, he was suffering within the will of God for you and me that we might be saved. Are you willing to suffer for someone else's salvation? Are you willing to do good for someone else's salvation? Are you willing to portray a humble, quiet spirit, a submissive spirit, so people will be saved, so your daddy will be saved? Some of you have dads, and they don't listen to Jesus because you've never apologized to them for their rebellion. When I was a youth pastor, uh, and the kids would get right with God at camp. I'd say, now, I don't want you going home The first and, and doing all this stuff. The first thing I do, I want you to do when you get home, I want you to apologize to your parents. Because they're cynical. You've been doing this stuff for 15 years, and you've been at camp for a week. They're going to be cynical. And you owe them an apology. And when you've done wrong at work, and you've been around with your buddies, and you've been cussing and drinking, and all of a sudden you're religious, they're not going to believe you. You owe them an apology. Listen, I was wrong. My life has been wrong. I'm a Christian. The way I've lived is not... Oh, no, you don't, you don't know. No, I do too. This, I, I was wrong. I'm not better than anybody. In fact, I'm worse. But I want you to forgive me. God has convicted me, and I am so sorry. Well, they'll be watching me tighter. I know they will, but they're going to be watching you anyhow, at least it's from a, from a point of brokenness. Can I show you a few more things? Look at verse 2. While they behold their chaste conversation coupled with fear. Notice the, these attitudes. Uh, chaste conversation has to do with a genuine life. It means purity, but it means it's a genuineness. It means you're real. And then the word fear doesn't mean like I'm afraid of my husband. or I'm just, It means respect. You say, well, my, my boss uses God's name in vain. You, you still say, yes, sir. He's a pagan. Well, you were a lost pagan. You just sinned in different ways. Say, yes, sir. Well, my daddy, he, you, you, you be real. And you, you show him respect. That's what the word fear means there. It means be respectful. You'll never win your authorities. You'll never win people around you with a swagger. You won't do it. This is, this is God's divine recipe. Now, I want you to look at the word in verse 2. While they behold. 
Don't miss that. They're watching. You see, they won't listen until they see. They're beholding the reality of your life and your respect. And they're different. Why should they respect me? I'm just a reprobate. I cuss about their God. And they respect me. Why should they? The word behold there means to carefully watch. It means an inspection. They watch you carefully. Your customers watch you. The kind of music you listen to. They watch you really careful. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 12, the Bible says, Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, among lost people, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, now you haven't done wrong, but they're speaking against you, they may by your good works, you have an honest lifestyle, but by your good works, you're doing good to them, which they shall, look at this, they shall behold. And they're looking for it. And part of the good works is your attitude of humility and respect and meekness and quietness. And they will glorify God. What is it? They'll have a high opinion of God. Well, I disagree with everything about them. I don't like religion. I can tell you to leave it, but I tell you one thing. If I had it, I'd want, to, I'd want what they do. They respect me. I want what they have. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 15, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer. So if there's an answer, there's a question. To every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you, and here it is again with meekness and fear. There it is again. Humility and respect. And I don't have time to give you the context there. Read the verses before and after. It's the same stuff in the middle of suffering. Now, the word answer there is where we get apologetics from. You know what the greatest apologetic is for an unbeliever? And I I believe in apologetics. But very few people get saved. There are some. Very few people get saved when you're able to say, well, the world was created in seven, really six literal days and resting on the seventh, as opposed to, you know, a day composed of an eon. And, and you know, you, you, you go, that, that's interesting and it's helpful. And I teach it. But that doesn't touch a man's heart. He's not going to ask you about that. These are lost people. They're asking you about hope. That's the question. You know what the hope is? It's your suffering. I mean, you suffer well, and you suffer unjustly. He fired you. They did that to your family. And the Bible says that you have a platform, and you, you respond with Jesus, with, with meekness, and with fear, suffering with a good conscience. So in conclusion, you don't gain influence with arrogance or demanding privileges, with humility and respect, 
but you do lose influence with pride in a dismissive spirit. And I think some of us in here have some apologies to make to some authorities in our life. Say, hey, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I haven't respected you the way that I ought. And God spoke to me about it recently. You don't mean to tell me you weren't sure. God spoke to me about it. And, uh, and then just start doing them good. Serve them. Ask God to give you a servant's heart. Serve your neighbor. Serve your children. Serve your parents. And, and cultivate this. Serving gives you a platform to sow the gospel. When you do that, it validates your genuineness of your profession. And I'm going to tell you, now it's more important than ever. So three questions. Number one, is someone in your life that needs the gospel, but they also need meekness and submission? They just need, they need you to do good, but they, they need an attitude of humility, not... Uh, well, you remember two weeks ago, don't keep score on it. Just just do good. Number two, who is in your inner circle that you can serve? Friends, relatives, acquaintances, and neighbors. And just, just, just begin to do good like a fountain. Ask God to help you. Ask God to give you the lens to see and be a needs meter. Listen for them. Yeah, I had my birthday last week. Write that down. That's when his birthday is. And then every year, just send him a card. Happy birthday. Just start listening. Who have you been serving? Maybe some of you, you said, preacher, I've been doing that. Well, maybe now it's time to invite them to a conversation, to invite them to church, to invite them to a meal. Say, listen, I love you. And I love you enough to talk to you. My daddy's brother was having open-heart surgery, and he was a very powerful man. And the night before I uh, went up to talk to him, I had to talk to him. And he had some friends that were in the room, and they stayed, and they stayed, and they stayed, and I'm over there praying, God, I prayed they'd leave. Got on with the nurses to kick me out. And they let me. The nurses let me stay. And finally, finally, the it was just me and my uncle. And I'm telling you, you know, the weight of a burden. It wasn't a light thing. I was so burdened. And I called my uncle by his name, my daddy's younger brother, and I loved him. And I said, I, I just want to pray for you. Before your surgery, I said, it's a very serious surgery. I said, I think you're going to be fine. But I know it's a serious surgery. Maybe you're concerned about it. He said, I am a little bit. And I began to weep, and I said, I'm just concerned about your soul. I want to know if anything happens that that you'll know for sure that when you die that you'll go to heaven. And he looked at me and he listened to me. And I wasn't like a, a young son to him anymore. It was, it was different. And we talked for 30 minutes and he said, back in 1960, and he gave me the, day, the month, the day, and the date. 
And I, I reviewed the gospel with him. And he said, that's the day I asked Jesus to be my Savior. And I prayed with him and I left and then went back up the next day. And I, but I went home and I, I said, Dad, do you remember anything that happened in this season of his life when he was younger? He said, no, I don't. And I told him what his brother had said. Maybe you have a brother or a sister or somebody that's important to you. You just need to talk to them. I hope you'll do it before it's too late. Our Heavenly Father, I pray today that as we leave here,